Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage, resilience, and sustainability. Coming right up. If there are two supply chain words that have stuck in everybody's mind in the past year or more, the first would be resilience and the second would be sustainability. And today we're going to talk about both. And I'm going to look back to some of the interviews I conducted earlier in the year to see what people had to say about both resilience and sustainability. So stay tuned. Over the past couple of years, what's become clear in supply chains is that there's much disruption. A lot of it was due to the pandemic, of course, initially, and then the disruption continued with other things. As the pandemic became less of the disruptor in certain parts of the globe, there was the disruptor of demand coming back to normal and supply unable to meet that demand. But of course, it was an unequal recovery from the pandemic. So, for example... China was locked down and still is for much of the time with the zero tolerance program and so disruptors are still in place and what's become the new normal is disruption. And then of course along came Russia invading Ukraine as if things could only get worse. Well they did and so people now focus attention and lots of it on resilience and of course governments have moved the resilience agenda right up to the number one priority. Alongside resilience, of course, sustainability is right at the top of the agenda too. And everywhere, governments, organisations and people are thinking about how to make more sustainable products, how to make transport systems sustainable, how to make manufacturing sustainable and how to make every aspect of our lives sustainable. So the two things together, resilience and sustainability, are worth a further look. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to look at both resilience and sustainability. And I'm going to take a look back at some of the episodes that we had during the past year where people on Chain Reaction discussed both resilience and sustainability in different contexts. So I'll be including some clips from some of the interviews that I conducted during that time. a conversation earlier in the year with Professor Wendy Phillips from Bristol Business School and we talked about redistributed manufacturing and resilience and it was particularly related to healthcare and I just want to return to our conversation and talk about how the redistributed manufacturing processes can actually help in humanitarian logistics and this is what Professor Phillips told me. So do you think the pandemic has changed anything with regard to the 
notion of redistributed manufacturing. And I think the pandemic has highlighted that there is an issue in terms of resilience and supply chain. So we do need to think of the longer term because there will be outbreaks and we're seeing more increased incidences of uh, environmental disasters. And you, um, I was just thinking about the tsunami in Tonga that uh, and that although obviously they've got nothing there now, but if the ships could just bring in some basic manufacturing equipment so they could 3D print some materials or they could you know, they talk about the water issue there. So you're thinking they're having an issue of drinkable water. So they must be having an issue in terms of clinical water and so forth there. So if they could, and they, they're worried about bringing COVID on the island. So if they could be self-sufficient in a way using yep. RDM technologies, it, the ones we're looking at have to work in an austere and, and be robust because at the moment we are working military and humanitarian agencies. So if there's some way that you could airdrop them in the way that they're doing now with these supplies that can easily be um, employed by locals, to sort of address the most um, uh, urgent matters, and that would be you know, it would be advantageous. So, uh, but they've got to be easy to use because you're asking local users to suddenly have to be able to use technologies and maintain them um, without experts there on hand to guide them all the way. So, um, obviously, they're a bit well in Tonga. They can't really do that at the moment via internet linkages. But, and we're thinking with the humanitarian situations, we're very keen to try and ensure those technologies can be easily used and fixed at a local level because um, yeah. they can't rely on some somebody over in the UK to come pop over and fix it if it goes wrong. So in the real world and real world applications. When it comes to this question of resilience, of course, the thing we know about resilience is that um, it's having an ability to bounce back and resilience often means shorter supply chains, moving away from global production, more local production and more local distribution. So redistributive manufacturing seems to fit the bill here well that's why we're working with the military is that, that they don't you know in essence when they're on deployed operations they want a zero logistics tail because they don't want to have any reliance on a, a large supply chain where disruptions could occur so that's why they're looking you know that they could see the business case for rdm because when they're out in afghanistan or yeah. syria or you know any major humanitarian situation then you know they're, they're trying to source the material or, or rely on material coming over it, it can hold things up so if they could find a way to um produce what they need where in yeah. a safe manner then they, they would do so i mean i'm gobsmacked that they um fly in water surgical grade water all the way from the uk when they're on operations because although they can produce potable water they can't produce surgical grade so that has to be flown in so you imagine the cost of flying water in one of our feasibility studies is looking at the potential to manufacture you know high grade clinical grade water at sites that can be used in a range of different clinical settings and of course this redistributive manufacturing has an impact on sustainability. This local production obviously has a, a impact in terms of air miles and in the pressure within the UK now to go towards net zero. Yep. And so it's you know, sourcing locally, avoiding those transportation costs. And RDM isn't quite there yet because at the moment, majority of the products still have to source some raw materials from overseas but in the longer term we could envisage that will be the case so one of the key areas i'm interested in taking further with rdm is that you know it can contribute significantly in terms of achieving sustainability so things like some medical supplies say for instance the covid vaccine it has to be transported and and some of those vaccines need cold storage so does rdm have a role here the transportation cold chain issues relating to their uh, these products necessitate and support RDM. Yes, I suppose if you can produce things locally, then you haven't got the problem, as you say, of transportation. And of course, it might be easier to keep things at the right temperature in the local situation. 
Of course, RDM is not for every product, is it? Production of paracetamol is always going to be cheaper and easier to produce that on a, a if not a global supply chain, but in a centralised manner. But there are, there are niche areas and emerging areas and areas where there's um, shelf life and the, the transportation cold chain issues relating to their, uh, these products necessitate and support RDM. So that's one interesting response with research taking place to see how redistributive manufacturing can improve humanitarian and healthcare logistics, supply and production. I'm sure we'll catch up with Professor Phillips sometime in the next year to see how that research is progressing. Now, another interesting conversation I had earlier in the year was with Dr. Rowan Plant-O'Toole at Napier University. And we discussed supply chain careers and skills needed to enter those careers. But in the course of conversation, we did also discuss resilience and sustainability. And this is what Dr. Plant-O'Toole had to say on those topics. Um, but I'm also involved with the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport, um, particularly so in Ireland, where I lead the policy committee. So we've done quite a few policy briefs, um, bridging the gap aspects, looking at what the policies are, looking what industry is doing and how do we get from one to the other. And the particular focus has been on sustainability and decarbonisation, which is a massive agenda. And we have a massive hill to climb and what we would need to achieve by you know, 2030, 2050, depending on which country is necessarily focused on. So, yeah, there's been quite, quite a lot of um, aspects in, in relation to that that's kept me, kept me busy. Yeah, there's something we know about supply chains. Aren't? There's always going to be a problem or a disruption somewhere, isn't there? So you've got to learn how to deal with those and roll with the punches. Haven't you really? Indeed. I think that's something we've seen massively over the last two years. I think you really only hear about supply chains and logistics when something goes wrong, um, if, if there's no product on, on the shelf. And I think we've seen so many examples um, of it over the last number of years for, for Brexit, from the queues at Dover Port for all the checks, for example, that really highlighted the supply chain issues from the ship being stuck in the Suez Canal, from the microchips not being available for some of the Xboxes and other other types of, of products that are also available. So I think it's been good in one way to look, look for the silver lining. It's been good for the log- careers in logistics and supply chain because we know we don't have enough people in this area and we know what happens tends to happen behind the scenes. So I think this has really been a platform to kind of let people know about the career opportunities there. Now, if you're looking for a career in supply chains, you should head over to the Chain Reaction site and take a longer listen to that particular episode because it was about supply chain careers. And we had both uh, Dr. Rome Planto-Tool and Dr. Regina Fry from Southampton University Business School on that particular show. And they have both developed really exciting master's courses in supply chain management. And if you're looking for a career or you're starting out and you're thinking about a career in supply chain, you should definitely go and look at both of those master's programs. The one thing we know about supply chains, there are many different career paths that you can take, whether that be in analytics, whether it be in the management of supply chains, some aspect of procurement, some aspect of production, some aspect of warehouse and logistics management. There are 
opportunities galore and there just aren't enough people with the necessary skills to take those roles up. So, opportunities there. Now, it was back in May when I was talking about reflections on resilient supply chains. And in that particular episode, I was interested in how China has come to dominate all kinds of mineral extraction and processing, and particularly all the minerals that we need for electric vehicle technology. So lithium, cobalt, and they produce somewhere between 70 and 100% in some cases of output using those materials that go into car manufacture. The European Union, in contrast, produces low amounts and America, despite its size, is quite a low producer when it comes to processing minerals for electric vehicles. You have to ask the question, how did we become so reliant on one country, yes, it's a very big country, but on one country to provide all the materials or most of the materials that we actually need to build the new technological future? Well, here's a brief extract of what I said at the time, and you can go back and listen to the full episode. Cobalt, lithium, copper... And these are all metals needed for the Green Revolution. In 2022, the Biden administration announced a raft of measures to increase production and processing of critical minerals in the United States. If you look at the US economy, they only produce about 1% of nickel, no cobalt, no graphite, no lithium, 5% of manganese, cathode about 1%, anode 0 and lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing is about 7%, so it's all extremely low. In contrast, if you look at China, they produce or process 68% of the nickel in the world, 73% of cobalt, 100% of the graphite, 59% lithium, 93% manganese, 80% of cathode, 89% anode, and lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing, about 79%. The European Union produce small amounts, 10% nickel, 15% cobalt, zero graphite of course, lithium zero, manganese five, cathode one, anode none, and lithium-ion battery cell manufacturing, 7%. So China dominates in these EV markets. And they've invested all over the world, not just in Central Africa, but they own mining operations in South America and in Australia. Western economies seem ill-prepared for this new green revolution. But is it really so green? Demand for the metals has increased substantially as the Green Revolution is taking off. And as we try to produce more and more electrical vehicles, the demand for the metals to go into those vehicles, and particularly into the battery technology, is likely to increase. It's expected that Britain alone will see a further 2 million electrical vehicles on the roads by 2035. Lithium prices are about 500% up during the past year alone. And electric cars use six times the amount of battery metals that conventional cars need, so the International Energy Agency says. Onshore wind farms require nine times more than a gas plant. So if the world is to reach its net zero target by 2050, the World Bank has estimated the production of these metals need to rise by 500% by the mid-century point. Now that's a fantastic number. Securing sufficient supplies of the all-important metals is critical to this development. And one thing is clear that the biggest processor 
of these metals, China is one of the most polluting nations in the globe. And we don't really know how much pollution is contributed by the production processes involved in getting those metals to a state of readiness to be used in electrical vehicles and in wind farms and everything else that's supposed to be green and clean. So we could do with a lot more research on that topic and governments need to be faster and smarter in their response to secure supplies if they too want to be green and clean. Now, I think I was making some very important points there about the future economy and the problem that Western countries have in relation to China's dominance of those metals, which are essential for all sorts of products that require electricity. So when we think about securing energy and we think about how we're going to reduce risk, increase resilience and prevent disruption, then governments need to take a far more serious approach to the arrangements that they make in relation to securing assets needed to reach that future position. So resilience, sustainability, dealing with disruptions are all very important in supply chains. But supply chains live in a connected world where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so to maintain the globe in a position that it can sustain life into the future is important in a world that provides resources for everything that's needed and a world that cooperates rather than one at war with itself nation states cooperating through collaborations that make life better rather than destroying each other is a world in which resilience would make things much better. Sustainability sustains life, sustains people, sustains systems and it's important that we conserve, preserve, cooperate, collaborate and improve life for everybody in the world rather than destroying things. Power, of course, corrupts, and it's that corruption that erodes. Leaders need to be responsible, and rogues need to be cast out into the darkness that they deserve. Vigilance is the price of freedom, and long may freedom reign. since I picked up my guitar, but I thought it was appropriate to play my melody that fits the piece. So that's it for this edition of the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'd like to thank my guests who showed their resilience and their sustainability credentials, thinking about how to make the world a better place through supply chains. After all, it's all about supply chain advantage, and that's for everyone, not for some. I look forward to seeing you next Saturday at 12 noon for the News Roundup. 
all things impacting global supply chains this week. And hopefully you can catch up on some of the episodes. You can get Chain Reaction on your favorite podcast, whether that be Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever. Get along there and listen to some of those past episodes. They might just give you some ideas on how to construct your next strategy. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now. listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.